1: Hey, everybody, this is Riggy Ragman, and you are listening to the Pantheon Podcast Network.
0: Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not a Genre, the interview edition. It's always monumental when there's an interview. That's why I do that. Uh, thank you, as always, for watching and listening. This is season six, episode five of Music is Not a Genre. It's kind of a banner episode because it represents three different subseries. For those of you scoring at home, this is interview edition number 34. But it's also a book talk. It's book talk number eight. And sad to say, but true. It's also uh, Death is Dumb, volume 14. And you'll understand why when we get into the subject here, I have a special interview guest, who those of you who are watching and not just listening, can already see who wrote a book about Annie Van Halen. But before we get to that, just a reminder, anyone who wants to see the bonus video that's, that is, accompanies any of the episodes that I do, you go to patreon.com slash music is not a genre. This week's bonus video is my take on Van Halen, their career, their music, Uh Pretty obvious one, considering the source material. So with me today is Steve Rosen. He is a legendary rock journalist who's been doing it for 50 years. He's the author of several books, including the book we're discussing today, Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen. And uh, I'll put the link in all of that stuff because I just finished reading the book last week. And I honestly can't say enough about it, but we'll get to that. First, let's get to Steve. Steve, how are you today?
1: I'm great, Nick. Great. Doing really good, man. Happy to be.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. You're right now. You're on the West Coast, right?
1: I am. I am uh, in uh, Orange County, a little town called Lake Forest, about 25 minutes from Disneyland. Very nice down
0: here. All right. Nice. Nice. So since my audience may not know you, a good way to start is, uh, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay, man. I'll give you the capsule version here. I actually began writing for my high school newspaper. I continue to freelance, you know, and, and you get something printed in a little local rag, little newspaper, you know, and that becomes a stepping stone for the next kind of magazine, you know. So, I wrote for the Los Angeles Free Press, which is a very ship underground newspaper. Way back in the day, very political. In 73, I started writing for guitar player, and that opened a lot of doors because guitar player at the time was really the only mad for musicians or for, you know, you to go find out, well, what kind of strings did uh, Jimmy Page use or what kind of amp was Mick Ronson using? You know, I mean, there was no internet, you know, there weren't like 8 million different sources to find that stuff out. wrote for Guitar World for about six years, I'm sorry, guitar player. And that led to like Rolling Stone and I did some things for Cream and Circus, ultimately moved over to Guitar World and wrote for them for about four or five years, which is where I did three cover stories on Edward, which a lot of Van Halen fans now look back at those as kind of, you know, pretty important interviews with Ed, sort of right around 84, 85. Along the way, I'd written some books. I wrote a book uh, in 78 on Jeff Beck, actually the first biography on him, which came out in Japan in Japanese only, I wrote a book about Sabbath, wrote a book on free and bad company, wrote a book on ready roads. You know, as the industry changed, paper magazines became kind of, you know, went the way of the dinosaur, unfortunately, and also started doing some stuff online. And about three years ago, thought or somehow came to me that, you know, maybe I could write this book on Edward Ben Halen that was supposed to happen back in 1985. And I realized I'm jumping back and forth here. In 1985, when I was hanging out with Ed, I had approached him. I said, Edward, I'd like to write your life story. And he goes, yes, yes, you can write it. Nobody else can write it, you know. So I worked on that for several years. That never happened. Our relationship kind of ended in 2003. And for 17 years, I just kind of, you know, thought about it and tried not to think about it and ultimately uh, thought, you know what, maybe, maybe now's the time and wrote the book. And 14 months later tone chaser, creaming, screaming, and crying, I was born, you know?
0: Wow. So so just an outpouring, like a 14-month outpouring of putting this book together.
1: That's what it was, man. And I was never the kind of journalist, you know, that was going to say, okay, it's, you know, 12 noon, that's my writing hour, and I'm going to write the next four hours. You know, I know a lot of guys have that regimen. I didn't. But I did do it literally, I think, every day for 14 months. And in fact, it wasn't day if you've read the book you know about my cat arpeggio who would wake me up at three in the morning yeah (laughs) he wanted to be fed so instead of trying to go back to sleep which i could never do i went into my little computer room you know and and started typing and you know i must have vaguely had the idea of of ben halen on my mind you know and i kind of walked away and had sort of like the first paragraph of the intro and i thought hey you know what this is interesting this could be something you know yeah literally that was a routine for 14 months Every single day, I was always afraid if I missed a day, I was gonna. It'd be like, well, you know, I don't want to do it today. I don't want to do it tomorrow. I'll, you know, it's like once you have the tiger by the tail, man, you can't let go. So
0: yeah, you're in a groove. You know, I feel that way about exercising. If I miss too many days, I don't want to go back to it. You know,
1: <laughs> man, you are exactly right. And I, I got to the point where I, I could not stand going to the gym anymore. So now I'm. I, I kind of take walks outside, but you're right, man. You miss a day at the gym, and it's like forget it, it's over.
0: Right, right. Oh man. So you're doing this now? I and I, I'm again. I, I have so many. You no, know, I re- I read this book uh, a, a little bit each night over the course of weeks, and it was partly because I wanted to take my time with it. I didn't. I I'll say this: most introductions, especially uh, to uh, nonfiction books feel a little compulsory to me they feel like well you know this is my explanation of why i wrote the book and i just kind of you know want to say that and whatever your intro was gripping from the moment it started i mean, just incredible like your voice the the voice that that carries the book which i Will assume carries many of the other things that you write is just so compelling and it's so honest and open and natural and yet at the same time in- knowledgeable and literary and all this like you put it all together and you do it right from the beginning.
1: That is so cool for you to say that, Nick. I mean, you really encapsulated what I was hoping certainly the intro would do and and lead you into the book and this is kind of what you're going to hear. And you're right, man. I've I've read enough of those nonfiction books. Yeah, to know the intro is a throwaway. You know, typically you don't even read them. Yeah. And, you know, know, I thought, well, this is also a very long intro. You know, typically it's a couple of pages. But, yeah, I kind of wanted to establish that. You know, you talk about the voice. And once I kind of found that, again, it was a difficult book to write. I suppose all books are to all writers. But you know, it's like, okay, the book can kind of lead me now a little bit. You know, I found that voice and if I can just hang on to it, man, but you really nailed that. That's exactly what I wanted to do, man. I didn't want anything to be throwaway or non-essential. And you know, I wanted you to kind of here, you know, as, as a preview, what you could expect in the book. So yeah, man, that's, that's exactly what I was hoping people would come away with in that intro for sure.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. And, and, you know, you say that all books are, are difficult for any writer, right? Cause it is, it is an undertaking, but I wonder if when you said that you, you know, setting aside the fact that writing a book and making it cohesive and something that people can read through and not want to put down and all of that. That's the technical side. But I, I wonder if part of that difficulty was an emotional
1: difficulty. You know, at first it, well, look, so my, my, my relationship with Ed end, ended in 2003 and I don't want to give a, the book away. I mean, people may have heard about it, but, it was not a good ending. It was hurtful to me. Honestly, man, for a lot of years, I tried not to think about Van Halen or Edward Van Halen, you know, and I see they had they had a record out and they were touring again with Dave. and I, Honestly, man, I, I tried to compartmentalize that. I, I didn't want to know about it, you know, and maybe that's selfish or weak or I don't know, but but that's the truth. And again, like I mentioned, over the years, I, I thought about doing a book and I thought, you know what, I don't, and maybe this is very honest, I didn't want to write a book about Edward. Look, I'm not, I'm not saying from the standpoint of who he was and what he did, he deserves to have a million books, but I would hurt, you know? And it's like, why am I going to sit down and write a book about him? Anyway, that feeling passed. Ultimately, I did sit down and start writing. And it really wasn't until I got into about the fourth, the fifth chapter, and I started listening to the interviews I had done with him. As I'm writing, and it's just narrative and just prose, and writing the intro and the first couple chapters, there was no real interview stuff involved. And then I get to that chapter called the first interview, which was the first interview with that, a a, a phoner. And as I'm listening to that, you know, I'm taken back to those moments. And even though it was a phoner, I can remember the conversation. And then as the book went on, all the in-person interviews and those would bring back memories, which I wrote about. And then it got pretty difficult, you know, and I thought, wow, this was really, you know, an amazing time I had with this guy and I was lucky. And yes, it didn't end. You know, very well, but but I, I wouldn't have traded the experience for anything. So it it, it was hard. And so I, I began the book on August twenty fourth, and I remember that because it was my birthday. And maybe that was a conscious thing, you know, So on October sixth of that year, Edward passes away. So I'm about three chapters in, four chapters in. Edward passes away, and I think, "Wow, what do I do now? You know, do I stop the book? Do I continue writing? If I continue writing, are people going to think, oh, you're just selfish, man. You just wanted to write a book or, you know, and if I don't write the book, I really believe I was failing myself. And so I obviously I continued writing and I'm sitting there in my little room for 14 months and, and you're trying to write the best book you possibly can and you want to move people and touch people, but you really don't know. So, you know, I, I get done with the book and I look at it and I think I've created something, but it was different. You know, it was pretty honest. And, you know, I took a very critical look at myself and I had those little notes sections in there, which I thought, I've never seen anybody do that. Are people going to understand that? Are going to think that's ridiculous? So it was hard for all of those reasons, not just emotionally, but yeah, technically and personally. And, you know, my God, are, are people going to understand it? Are they going to slam me for some of the things I said about Edward? So at the end of the day, I, I, you know, I really kind of had to write it for myself. And then thankfully, you know, everybody thus far has has really seemed to dig it. They understood what I was trying to do.
2: Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them.
0: It comes across as pretty clear to me what you were trying to do. And I want to, I have actually have a question about that and the amazing honesty in there. But before I get to that, it's interesting you mentioned that I assumed, because people assume things, that you started writing the book that you were compelled to write it because he died. But you had started writing it before he died.
1: That is true. And I know this is going to sound ridiculous. And I'm not a, I don't really believe in the beyond. I hope there's something out there. Yeah, I'm not a, spiritual person necessarily. Look, we all knew that Edward was very thick, but this is really weird, man. I had a couple dreams that they were kind of vaguely ab- about him. Look, again, I'm not trying to be like this deep mystic crystal ball person, but I knew sooner than later that something was going to happen with Edward. So look, I'm not saying I began the book knowing what was going to happen six weeks later, but I don't know what that was. When he did pass away, I was shocked and horrified. And I thought, is that what I was thinking about? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, even in telling you the story, but I did start it before he passed away. I mean, one of my wishes, you know, was that Edward would have still been here when the book was completed. Now, we may not have spent on speaking terms, but I hope he would have known that, hey, you know, yeah, Steve wrote this book and I'm not speaking to him anymore, but I know his book is going to be honest. You know, we have those wishes, you know, that uh, that's what I would hope. That's what I would have hoped
0: anyway. Well, that's, I mean, you've blown my head up with questions right now, but the one thing that I want to start with is this feeling that you have of hope. And even that kind of, I don't want to give it away, but there was a sequence at the end that had to do with reconciliation and all of that stuff. And I'm, I'm you know, I, I'd rather people read the book to get there because it really hits you when you get there. But there was a real feeling of throughout the book, but in particular towards the second half or whatever, that, that there was a lot of heartbreak in there.
1: Heartbreak for me. Yes. But
0: I will also say that as, as a reader, I'm getting to know Eddie in a way that I never knew. Like I, I learned things I mean, about him as a person, certainly, and you kind of chronicled his development as a person from, you know, his issues with, uh, you know, drugs and all of those things. And and just the the way that he would handle conflict and whatever, and, and to where he evolved in a certain way. And one could say even evolved, it, it, that evolution took him away from you and maybe other people as well. But it, throughout that, the, so now I'm feeling this connection to Eddie. And, and I will say, and you're right here in front of me. I felt a connection to you too. You to me, you you are as much of a character in this book as Eddie is, and that is an absolute plus. That's a huge plus. I almost think the way you describe certain things, it reminds me of that movie from the eighties, uh, Zelig. <laughs> You know, like you, you were just there, you were there for so many things over the years, you know, you just have, it was this incredible. And so I'm connected to all these, like you know, tendrils of what's going on with you and Eddie and, and even the honesty that you have about yourself and your thought process and the mistakes you thought you made, whether they were mistakes or not, you know, just the feelings and just how raw and really generous you were in, in sharing all this stuff. So it forges this connection to where whatever heartbreak that you felt or have felt, I was feeling it too.
1: That is so cool, man. I I love that, Nick. Thank you so much. There is a lot of heartbreak in that book. I mean, Ed broke my heart a lot of times, you know, and Edward's own heart was broken. I mean, he went through some major turmoil. And, you know, you read about that. And, and now we know about that turmoil with, you know, some of the other members of the band. But when he's telling me these stories, you know, concurrent with their second record being released, and he's telling me these stories, that's like, whoa, my God, he's really, he's unhappy. And with Ed, as I wrote, it's all about respect. And Ed, Ed felt disrespected. And that's the worst thing you could do with Edward. There was a lot of heartbreaking moments in the book. You know, things I experienced with him, they were far more uplifting and and amazing moments for sure. But Ed changed and I tried to understand why that happened and what happened. And it's hard to to put my finger on. But yeah, there was a lot of hurtful moments. And and like you said, I I, I tried to be as honest as I possibly could without coming off as maudlin or, or woe is me. And it's like you think you know somebody so well, And they say things and do things, and you just simply cannot find any rationale for it at all. So you just kind of back up and accept it, which maybe I shouldn't have done. Maybe I could have been more confrontational. And, you know, why are you treating me like that, man? Why would you say that to me? You know, how could you believe I would do that? But look, I mean, at the end of the day, the reality is, as much as I was his friend, he's also Edward Van Halen. And, you know, could I have said those things to him? I mean, I probably could have. I just didn't have it in me. I didn't have the chutzpah to say those things to him. You know what I mean?
0: I don't know who, you know, I'm sure some people would, but I think most people would be deferential to a degree in, in that dynamic.
1: Absolutely, man. And I saw band members being deferential. I saw managers being deferential. I saw, you know, other guitar players. I mean, amazing guitar players being deferential. So who is I going to go and and hurl these criticisms at him, you know? But yeah, man, there is a lot of heartbreak in the book. There really is.
0: Yeah. What I think of when you describe the way, you know, the relationship you had with him and in, in particular how you described it just now is, first of all, how amazing it is that you were able to get that close uh, to him considering it just started as an interview and, and it and it really did evolve into something more than just a professional relationship but that's someone who's going through the turmoil that he had been going through really his whole whole life in one way or another. I tend to think of people when I'm really thinking about it in terms of degrees of distance away from me. So the people I feel safest with are the closest to me and I can handle their storms and, and, you know, and ups and downs or whatever. And then it's varying degrees of distance after that. And the people who to me seem the most, erratic and difficult to pin down or you 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 know one day they're super up and and into you and the next day they don't want to have anything to do with you are the ones i keep the furthest distance from mm-hmm. because i never know where i stand with somebody like that yeah and i mean we're i'm reading a book that's you know it's uh, several hundred pages and it encapsulates decades of experience but experiencing it in that way over just a period of a few weeks, you know, reading it made me feel like maybe in the macro sense, there was that you were close and then you weren't close and, and you you know, you thought you were on a certain foothold or standing with him and then that kind of got slipped out and your desire or just that whether it was professional or personal to want to keep going back in there and say, well, there's a connection there and it might be for this interview, but it's also because we have a relationship really Shows like a perseverance in the face of a tornado, a whirlwind of emotion from him.
1: No, man, I get it. I get it, man. That's a very, very intriguing and interesting analogy. And that's what it was because, I mean, I I, I love the guy. Beyond the fact that he was this remarkable musician, he was a really decent to me in those early years. He was supportive, man, and and you know, like I said, I'd say stupid things to him, and I cringe, and he just laughed it off, and <laughs> and I used the word before, and this was critical to Ed. It was about respect, and I would never write these words or say this sentence if I didn't truly believe it. He respected me. You know, and, and he felt comfortable opening himself up to me and, and saying those things to me. And I think I was good for his soul. You know, I mean, I was pretty insightful and, and I had talked to so many musicians. I understood what, what made them what they are, you know? And yes, man, I wanted to hold on dearly to that friendship. And so. You know, going back there, and again, if you haven't read the book, you won't understand. But if you read the book, you know, going to those interviews at Warner Brothers, and him looking at me like a stranger, and and it, honestly, it, I, and I didn't use the description because I thought it was too brutal. But it was, it was as if he had Alzheimer's, man, and he just did not know me. But I knew he knew me, and he consciously acted like he didn't know me, which was worse than. If he chemically didn't know me, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then I went back for a second interview, you know, and it's like, yeah, you just can't understand why that's happening. And for me, I've always had a pretty thin shell, well, a very thin shell. So it's like, what did I do? What could I have done that would have made him change like that? So, yes, I did everything I could to try to hold on to that friendship. Uh, you know, seven years past, and I don't hear a word from him. And, you know, I still hope against hope that that is going to happen but yeah, it was really close, you know and I think we confided each other in a lot a lot and trusted each other and respected each other and yeah, it was great until it wasn't, you know unfortunately.
0: I mean, it felt real reading it. And the way I feel about how you described him is that and you may have even said this is that he's just he was just a super sensitive person in, in that he felt everything you know and that when, and the times when he felt safe or comfortable, he would display that and and make a connection or whatever it was. And when something would shut him down or make him feel threatened or something that had maybe had nothing to do with you or any anybody else, he would go the other way and just put this shield up because someone who's that like who all the like everything is on the surface of their skin, they just feel everything, you know. And it's no wonder that he played the way he did because it was just this frenetic energy of just constantly feeling that you have to at some point shut the door on that, even if it's for a day or a minute, just to save yourself. And the danger is you shut the door and it doesn't open again. And I feel like that's sort of what happened where I've known people who have developed and evolved or whatever, and have figured out ways to be self-protective and some are healthy and some are unhealthy. But sometimes we end up being casualties of those people's and and not even to pass judgment you know just that something in his brain might have said well this is a this is an association with a part of my life that was so vulnerable and crazy that it's hard for me to go there and had he tried he probably would have realized that you're the same great guy to him you've always been but he just had he just shut that door and never opened it again.
1: Yeah, man. No, that that's a that's a really, really salient point. Edward, and I write about it, was an extraordinarily honest person. So that honesty thing, yeah, maybe works the other way. Yeah, if he felt cornered or or unsure about something, he would he would retreat. And yeah, and maybe he didn't know how to get back. I don't know. But but I can tell you, Edward a lot of times took the path of least resistance. And by that I mean he allowed other people to maybe make decisions for him. I mean, management, you know, Sammy Hager comes in and brings his own manager with him. <laughs> I mean, I don't get it. I, I just totally don't understand that. I mean, why would you do that? You know, and I might have said something peripherally to Edward, but it's not like I was saying, Ed, what the fuck are you doing <laughs> Don't let him come in with yep. it, it just made no sense to me, you know. Or or when he was looking for a singer, and I again I don't want to give it away. And he he said, Go find me a singer. I think he's half joking. He was dead serious, man. And if I had found somebody great, he probably would have taken that singer. As if Edward didn't know or didn't want to or thought it was somehow premiering his artistry somehow to go look for a singer or to set up auditions or to listen to tape. You know? So I think Edward was maybe listening to people, I don't know, who maybe didn't have his best interests at heart. I don't know. I, I don't know what went on behind closed doors. But yeah, I know that, yeah, at a point in time, yeah, that door with him, he and I, you know, started closing and it was strange. So, I mean, yeah, over the, the course of years, I could feel the door closing. And then we have a conversation. One of the conversations we had towards the very end was really a pretty deep conversation. As if it was Alzheimer's been reversed, and he was now remembering again, and and he was saying some very personal things to me, uh, you know. So it it was it was really hard to understand. But yeah, I I I think that there were things going on in his life that I really I really didn't know that much about it, uh, unfortunately. His marriage and the deal on Warner Brothers, and the situation with the band and the drugs and the drinking, and you know his health. So I mean, part of me understands that. I mean, hey, I get it. You know, any one of those things could knock you over. What I didn't understand is why all of that venom seemed to be directed at me. That, that, that's what I didn't get. You know, and now it's hard to write about and hard to figure out and look for a meaning for.
0: You paint this picture of him that can be I'll I'll say it this way, that can give the because you are so, so comprehensive in the way you addressed all of the interviews you did and the information he gave you in those interviews and the things you say about him and and your relationship. It gives the impression that this is a full picture of him. And as you know, you even said there are things you didn't know about his life or things that were going on and things that I even reading your book or any other thing I've ever read about him or all the music I've heard that I would certainly not know and certainly less than you. It makes me wonder, there must have been other people in his life that he kind of did the same thing to where he was like, well, that phase or that person or that relationship has to be done with now, whether it was somebody giving him advice on that. Or him going through all the, was it like Buddhist stuff or meditation or therapy or all the things that he worked on to try to find a more peaceful place within him. Right. And that to me, if it's not just you, then in some ways it's not you at all because it was like this decision that affected so many facets of his life because he needed to start the next chapter or whatever you want to say.
1: Right. No, I absolutely believe that. Yeah. I, I I don't think I was the only one that, that got pushed aside. I mean, years earlier, though, it's was probably for different reasons, you know, I mean, Michael Anthony is booted out of the band and that might have hurt terribly for Mike. I mean, look, I said some things about Mike. I didn't know Mike that well. I did interview him back in the day for the book. Mike and I got along great. Uh, Edward loved the guy, but somewhere, you know, Edward felt that, you know, Mike wasn't, doing what he should have been and brings in his son. You know, I mean, it's Ed's band. He can do whatever he wants. But I don't know. Was that part of that cleansing thing? I don't know. That that was pretty early on. I often wondered the same thing, you know, Nick. And there's a little bit in the book. Uh, one of the, one of our last conversations, and it's funny because I never remembered asking Edward this. And as I was writing the book, I thought about this and I thought, oh, I never acted about this. But as I'm coming across one of these tapes, I realized I did ask him. And that is, Edward starts going to that, uh, to the Swami, you know, and, and, and getting more into Buddhism and becoming more self-aware. And it's around that time when, you know, I ask Edward, I go, Ed, you know, this is after we, you know, the relationship had kind of splintered and I hadn't seen him for a while. And I said, man, I said, I, I hope the reason that, you know, you kind of stopped hanging out with me or singing, I forget what I, the exact words I used, you know, I hope it wasn't because, you know, we would get high together or, he thought that if I was around, you were going to get high again. He goes, No, no, man. It had nothing to do with that. And I go, You're sure? He goes, Yeah. I mean, I didn't think I was just triggered because certainly he was doing drugs way before me. But, you know, just to hear him say that, it's like, you know, that made me feel better because I, I didn't in any way want to think that I was doing that. Or being that trigger. You know, so after he said that, I mean, um, I felt good about it. But then I thought, well, okay, that's not the reason. Then what is the reason? What Ed, is, right, said, right. <laughs> exactly. But I know Ed did push other people away. Uh, during that same period, absolutely.
0: You brought up something I want to kind of get to in a second. We're kind of we're coming up on a halfway point here, and I'm going to take a little break. Everyone out there in the land of podcasts, and uh, get back. I want to ask you a little bit about the tapes, and I also want to kind of illustrate uh, some some other parts of the book that I found absolutely fascinating. So hang out. We'll be back in a, in a couple of minutes. Go. Cool. Hey, so I was going to do the usual and just list all of the links that I'd love for you to check out, but I realized that everything you need to know and everywhere you need to go is at nickdomadio.com. That really is the hub. I list all the links in every episode just in case, but nickdomadio.com is where I put everything that I do. If you want to know more about this podcast, whether it's the audio version or the YouTube version at youtube.com slash app music is not a genre or wherever else the podcast shows up, or if you want to support the podcast at patreon.com. Com slash music is not a genre. Just go to nickdemadio.com. It's all there. If you want to check out my full discography of original music and covers for my band Rec, REC, and beyond, it's at com, including all the streaming and social links for wherever you listen to music and wherever you check out your social. Uh, my acting clips are there. My voiceover clips are there. Graphic design, my blog, and most especially, it's the best place to contact me. If you go to NickDimadio.com slash contact or just hit the contact is on every single page. You can send me a note, say hello, ask me any questions you'd like. You get a newsletter a few times a month and... If you have a project of your own and need work done for it, whether it's audio editing or music or voiceover or graphic design, or if you have an event and you need live music, go to com. contact me, say hello, let me know what you need. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. Back with Steve Rosen, author of Tone Chaser, relationship with Edward Van Halen. And right when we left off, you were mentioning how you discovered something that you didn't remember saying to him. And it brought up something I wanted to ask you earlier, which was, it must have really felt like a time warp to have those tapes and to hear the two of you talking and discover, rediscover some, but fully discover things you'd just forgotten about.
1: Absolutely. I mean, all told, there were probably, I think there were 40 or 50 tapes. There were a lot of tapes. Hmm. I had tried, and I write about it famously or infamously in the book, I had tried to be a careful historian and archivist. And I thought I was good at, at you know, well, I did that interview on September 14th, 1985. and I marked mark the cassette because these are cassettes, right? You know, I thought I, I, I marked the cassettes carefully. Well, I didn't do a very good job. So half the cassettes I had were unmarked. They said Edward Van Halen on them, but there was no date. So, yes, those tapes were the, you know, the memory jogger. So I had the tapes in a a rough chronological order, and every tape was numbered. So tape number 10 to 11, 12. So 10, I'm assuming, was the earliest chronologically. So I go to listen to that and go, oh, yeah, that's the first interview I did with Edward, uh, the phoner, in early '78. And then I listened to the next tape thinking, well, that's going to be, you know, later in 78, 79. And that tape could have been from 1984, man. Oh. I'd have to listen to the tape long enough to hear something that would trigger something in me to know, oh, oh, he's talking about jump. So that's, you know, 1984 or that's, uh, you know, track from the second record. That's, you know, 1980, uh, you know, 1981. So is that there was that to contend with, and yes, w- it was a remarkable feeling to go through because honestly, yes, some of the tapes had been transcribed and appear as interviews in magazines, but most of these interviews had never been transcribed, and in fact, I had never listened to them since the day they were recorded. So we're talking, you know, what is 1980, 23 years ago? So you know, I'm hearing this stuff. I'm going, oh my God, I didn't remember asking him that or, Oh, my God, did I really ask him that, you know, or wow, what a great interview, you know. I also write about sort of discovering what I would ultimately call the twilight tape. Those were the more personal discussions Edward and I had, where it wasn't just sitting down for a specific interview for a specific magazine, where I had a list of questions and that type of thing. These were just conversations that we would have typically late at night, which is why I called them the twilight tapes. Edward would call at two in the morning or three in the morning, and he just wanted to talk. Those moments were amazing. And I didn't remember a lot of the conversations on those tapes, and hearing that was that was amazing. Some of that stuff was really hard to listen to. But yeah, man, every every tape was like this Yeah, opening a vault with, the, you know, uncovering something new. It was amazing. I, I I just couldn't believe how much really amazing stuff there was there. And when I started hearing this stuff, I go, wow, there really is some amazing stories here. And I think they will make a, a, a pretty great book, you know. Yeah.
0: And something that you'll all discover if you read the book, which you should, is that the interviews themselves are not just transcriptions of what has already been published. You transcribe like pretty much and things that weren't published as well. Right.
1: Exactly. So, yes. So I sit down with Ed and we talk for an hour and a half. Well, only an hour's worth of stuff will fit into the format of the magazine. Yeah. for so the rest of that stuff, I just sort of would be editor and, and, and I cut that stuff out. So all of that stuff is in there and probably a lot of stuff that was left that was probably a little off subject, you know, which wouldn't have made sense putting in Guitar World magazine, for instance. But now people, fans, you know, reading that, you know, that it, it becomes really interesting kind of stuff. And again, within the interviews, you know, I, I, I comment on the interview and, you know, me asking a certain question and. I try to describe physically what's going on. You know, I have you know my little parentheses inserts, you know, uh, Edward lights another cigarette or Edward, you know, snorts another line and I snort with him or, you know, whatever it is. So people can really be inside uh, 5150 or my living room, you know, sitting there on the couch with us as they read.
0: It felt that way for sure and it it was funny that it came up a lot where he would say, "Don't print this, you know and he was trusted you enough to know that he's not going to print this and then of course, now years have passed, and it's a whole different context, and it's fascinating to hear like you said the internal strife of the band and anything else that obviously no you know you wouldn't want to print at the time it sheds so much light on the trajectory of the band you know in context and and then just zooming out and seeing well I was a huge fan of Van Halen from the at least the very early 80s maybe slightly before then and when 1984 came out it just you know blew me away because i was a keyboardist at the time and i was like oh holy shit, you can do this. Wow. And you can do something other than just, you know, piano ballads. And then David Lee Roth leaves. And I mean, I followed his solo career for a year or two, and that was fine. I enjoyed it. But I was always really confused about how at the height of, you know, when they hit this and they seemed everything seemed to be going so well. And people kind of got the idea of what might have been happening over the course of the next few years. And everyone has their opinion of Sammy Hagar and all of that other stuff. But what you showed was, like you said, even from as early as 78, there were questions about the dynamics of the band.
1: Absolutely. That's really interesting. You could almost use those things when he says, do not print or don't use that as a stepping stone. Yeah, because those were the moments he really didn't want revealed at the time. And if you look at that, you certainly have a better feel for why Dave left or that thing wasn't working after 1984. You know, and, and you hear it on the head, and I'm hoping people understand that. Had I not, and I could have done this, and it would have been the easy way out, I could have left those bits out where Edward says do not print. But I think by doing that, one, I wouldn't have been honest. And two, like you say, it reveals so much about him that this is stuff he didn't want printed, that, that you realize that is the really important stuff. And had I not put do not print, you still might have thought it was cool, but you never would have had a sense of how really important it was, you know? Yeah, but by putting do not print, including that in the text of the book, I think it's finding a spotlight on Edward saying, yeah, this is what I'm going through. I I can't tell anybody this. I don't want you to tell anybody. But again, yeah, use those moments in the book and you can see, you know, maybe what led to, you know, I'm not saying it's an exact Direction, but you can maybe understand, you know, what was happening with Mike, and you know, ultimately, and Dave, and that kind of thing. Yeah, because you have to remember. Yeah, when Ed is telling me things, I I am pretty positive. There's not another journalist in the world who you'd ever told that. I mean, I'm 99% positive.
0: I think that those moments of do not print kind of have a, have a double effect of creating this intrigue of, well, here's a behind the scenes, look at what was happening. But at the same time, kind of emphasizing the fact that you had a genuine relationship with him. And like you said, you don't know if he told anybody else those things.
1: That's exactly right. Actually, if I thought about it, Nick, that's what I would have said. That's very, very cool. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: man. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah, It was great. You
1: know, it's funny. I only had one, Person who mildly said, Well, why would you print that stuff when he said, Do not print? And, you know, I, I, I tried to explain as I just explained. I said, You know, we're talking 40 years after the fact. You know, I, I think a lot of it is common knowledge now. But yeah, you know, I, I wanted you to know that those were private parts for Edward. And, and I think they had to be there in my book. And, and you know, that's why they're there. So. But I've only, only one person ever, ever kind of made that comment. Everybody else was, still like, wow, man, that's cool that you would put that, you know, Edward said, do not print. I mean, they got it, you know, like you did. So
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I want to get to a whole other part of the book that I absolutely love. But before I, I have one more question sort of related to this, which is, do you know if anybody from his circle has, has read this book, like Wolfgang or any of his wives or.
1: That's the $64,000 question. <laughs> Look, I mean. Wolf is pretty active on social media, you know? I mean, is he aware of the book? I think so. I I don't know at all. Um, Has he read it? I doubt it. I mean, let's put it this way. I've certainly never had an order from Wolfgang Van Halen. I I mean, you know, or anybody, I mean, I probably, you know, that I would have recognized as working in the, you know, Van Halen camp. Yeah. So, no, I don't think anyone has, has read it, you know. Does Al know about the book? You know, I don't know how much he's on social media or looking out there to see what's going on. I mean, you know, Wolf might have told, uh, you know, Uncle Al about it. Has Valerie read it? Probably not. You know, and I've said this before. I I, I have this fantasy that, that the phone's going to ring one day and it's going to be, uh, Wolf's going to call me. And the conversation will be something like, look, you know, I've heard about your book. I haven't read it. I don't think I, w- I want to read it. I'm assuming here, you know, but the truth is, I guess you knew my dad for a very long time and you knew him back, you know, before he was, you know, a big star or before the first record came out, you know, and maybe you could tell me some things about my dad that maybe I don't know. And, you know, I, I, I think about that and I think, wow, what a wonderful conversation that could be because obviously he loves his dad. They had a remarkable relationship, but I, I, I did know his, I mean, obviously I knew his dad before he did. Right. Yeah. I knew his dad years before he did. And I don't know. Part of me thinks, well, that would be something intriguing for him, but you know, people might say, don't talk to Rosen, you know, don't go. There. I don't know, but that's, that's my fantasy about it. And one last caveat, the last thing I ever wanted to do, and if I thought I was doing that, I would have cut those parts out, was probably to hurt anybody in the Van Halen camp, embarrass anybody, discredit anybody. I, I think it's the opposite. I, you know, it, to me, it sounds like a 500, 580 page homage to, to my friend and the greatest guitar player who ever lived. You know, I was afraid of going too far the other way, you know, and yet there are some pretty personal moments in there when Edward says things, but I, I think they reveal a lot about him. I don't think that they're scandalous or I don't, I don't think they're hurtful. I mean, I say those things. I mean, I reveal those things about myself. You know, I'd rather not have the whole world knew I was snorting coke and drinking with him, you know, but that, that's what happened, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll say two things. I don't think any of the content is objectionable on, on any level. And, and like you said, I think it's elucidating and just in, in the way it does pay homage to him because of how insightful it is in many ways. And anything to me that came off as there was something negative you said was so put upon you and your perception of the relationship that unless you're not paying attention, it's impossible to take that the wrong way. It, 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 I, I feel like you, you'd have to be actively looking for a fight to read this and say, oh, this is a takedown piece. Or like, it's not even. It's so far from that.
1: That's cool, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. You know, Noel Monk's book, a Running with the Devil, which is a very good book. I don't know if you know or not that you would know. I was actually approached by Noel to write that book. And, you know, this was God, I don't know when Noel's book came out. I I don't know, years and years and years ago. And I I believe he had sent me some rough drafts or some notes he'd had. And and I saw the type of book that he wanted to write. And I I didn't want to be a part of that. So he brought in another writer. I remember the writers did a really excellent job. I mean, it's a good book. But I mean, I guess I sort of look at my book and I look at what Noel's book did. And my God, to me, that's like, wow, that's pretty nasty stuff. You know, even if that all that stuff did happen and, you know, there's two sides to every story. There's no side and Edward side in the band side. You know, it's like, my God, wouldn't the Van Halen camp have gone gunning for Noel? I, I don't I don't know.
0: Yeah. Good point. So If they didn't go for him, why would they why would they come for you? Yeah. Well, I don't know. This is a great time to pivot because I there's there's a part of this book that I want everybody to know about. You know, you're a musician. I'm a musician and music lovers and as much as i was absolutely fascinated by all the personal story and getting to know him and getting to know you and and your relationship and all of that there was also so much information about the music itself and his approach and things that i won't say i've i've been a rabid fan of van halen i full disclosure i kind of checked out after david lee roth left and have only recently listened to the rest of their catalog just to kind of catch up and see how things went, and especially really compelled by your book, yet to hear some of the things that he said sort of casually, like there's, I have a quote here that says, I love mistakes because you can never redo them exactly the same. And a lot of times some good shit comes out, That is one of my favorite things about the recording process and something I had to learn along the way doing my own music is those mistakes can be golden. And to know that somebody like Eddie Van Halen, who I'm listening as a kid and I'm like, he's inhuman. Like, how in the hell is he doing all of this? Is saying, well, some of that was just flying off the cuff and it happened and I left it in or He even mentioned at some point in his career, he started comping solos. And I just had this conversation with a bandmate of mine who's like, I needed to get it perfect in one take. And I'm like, but why? You know, if what comes out and what I love about the way Eddie approached music was, he understood that the way you put together a song is what matters the most, that the context of what you're playing isn't going to matter at all if the song sucks. So if that means you need to comp something or you leave a mistake in because it works or you don't, or you're, you know, you're working on coaching the vocalist or whatever else it is, I, first of all, had no idea he was that intimately involved in the creation of the music. As a kid, I just thought, oh, he's the pyrotechnics guy and that's it, you know. But my God, like he crafted everything, really, In, in you can almost say, I mean, other than lyrics, you know, mostly. And I'm telling everyone out there, throughout the book, there are these nuggets of information about the music and you're here, someone who got to hear some of that shit before anybody else ever heard it before it was even done and co-writing oh, like writing together and everything and i'm just like melting like i i have chills all over my body even just talking about it cuz as a as a writer and singer and all that i'm like if i could ever come close to doing anything with any of my heroes i might have to have a defibrillator put in because it would just kill me on the spot
1: yeah yeah I guess well, that's cool, man. yeah, it, there were some remarkable moments, and yes, Edward tossing out a line about mistakes, and you know, I was going to fix it, but then you know, I didn't know if I could duplicate it, you know, which he loved. I wish I had pursued those moments, no, more, you know, but you're in the middle of an interview, and it's like you don't think about it at the moment. it's just a line like, you know, but it stands out for you, and now I think about, it. yeah, it, it is brilliant. And yes, we know that Edward Van Halen was an astonishingly good guitar player. We all know that. We know that he built his own guitars and, and played his own guitars. His sense of composition, and people say, "Yeah, oh, he wrote great riffs," and he did. But but it was so much more than that. And it was these things you're talking about. It was just yeah, his feel, you know. At the same time that it was so, my God, his sense of rhythm was just unbelievable. It was remarkable, you know. But it also had this loose, organic thing, you know. And yeah, the riffs sounded, kind of, you know, not sloppy, but just. organic and yeah there were little mistakes here and there i just think a lot of that part of him gets overlooked that it's not just these riffs; it was just his sense of harmony you know and putting the sections together and the way that he you know stuck a little chord to go into the b section or the next time that verse rolled around you know before he started you know layering a multi-tracking guitar you know the second time the verse came around you know it, it it'd be a little bit more accent on the riff or the riff would become a little more complex, you know, m- m- more notes and stuff. I mean, that stuff, you know, and you think about when he was doing that, my God, it was amazing. And then you hear a record like Fair Warning where he's had all the time he wants not to really orchestrate guitars and you hear those parts and you hear the two lead lines going on and a r- rhythm part, you know, and wow, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, but the mistake thing, that was just, yeah, that was the cool thing. You know, I think in there somewhere I say, Ed, you know, did you learn, I forget exactly how I, how I phrased the question. Did you learn how to become a better writer on the second record from the first? And he goes, well, that sounds like, you know, a formula thing, you know, and, and he was like, he, he was offended by that. With him, it was always, like he said, man, it was just kind of going for the throat and, and just kind of wandering some, somewhere new and really not thinking about it. And if I said, Ed, yeah, me, you know, you're maturing as a songwriter. I don't think he liked that at all. You know, <laughs> you know, with him, yeah, we, it was always this organic thing, this never thinking about it. Yeah, mistakes be damned. He, he was unbelievable. And you talk about, yes, hearing those tracks unmixed. He'd come over to the house, playing me tracks in the second and third record and some of the fourth record. And there was, pro- I think, pretty positive they were drums. I don't even know if there was a bass part on it. There was certainly no vocal. And again, I write in the book, I've always wondered, did he bring those over because he really wanted me to hear the, guitars naked like that or were the vocals not yet recorded i believe he wanted me to hear the guitars unadorned and then you can like really hear it it's like oh my god and then when he would play this stuff you know sitting in my living room in the little hollywood hills guest house up on weepaw way whether he was plugged into one of my little amps or just playing the electric acoustically and you'd watch and you'd go Oh, holy God! You realized how remarkable he really was. I, I mean, you know, I ran out of adjectives. I, I I mean, you know, but when you're watching him up close and you're watching his fingers and and the way he's attacking the strings and and bringing out the accents of, and things, it was just unbelievable. you know It was unbelievable. I mean, yeah, that and, and it, it was all of that 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 made made us understand or or have a sense of why Edward is sort of here. And there are other brilliant guitar players, but none of them are quite there. Look, I'm not talking about Jeff Beck or Jimi Hendrix or some of these, but, you know, a lot of other insanely good guitar players never quite got the reaction from listeners that Edward did. And why? I think it's just all these things that we're talking about here, you know? A lot of unspoken things, and you just feel these things when he plays that you don't feel from other guitar players.
0: When you explain it that way, it makes more sense now, looking back, that, you're talking about nuance in his playing, where the end of one verse would be slightly different, or whatever, that those kind of instincts would be awoken by somebody who wasn't just a hatchet man or whatever, you know, someone who's just out there riffing, who understood that it was riffing for a purpose and that it needed to lead to something. And I'm I'm sort of repeating myself, but this, that idea that he had in mind, well, it was fitting in this way in the song. And so maybe often without even thinking about it it was like, well, my body's telling me that it needs to do this before I get to the next pre-chorus or whatever it is. Now I can see it. Now I can hear it. Now I can hear that, of course, he was, like, I assumed, oh, they hired a keyboard player for 1984, you know, like, I had no idea, like, oh, holy shit, that was him, you know, and I heard later stuff, and him playing, and I guess even some of the bass parts, you know, that he said that he tracked, I'm like, oh, my God, virtuoso, just up and down.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for everybody, it it was always about the song, and it was always about a vocal song, Mm. Edward never had a desire, you know, and he'd been asked, hey, Ed, go do a an instrumental record. And he said, why? You know, I, I do everything I need to do in, in Ben Halen. So he was always aware that a vocal was going to go on top. But I don't think he ever laid for that. I don't ever think he wrote a part because he knew the vocal was going to be there. You know, I mean, I, I, he just had that, that, that sense of, it. you know, and, and today's credit and Edward said it, a lot of the songs that Edward wrote probably weren't the easiest. For for Dave to come up with a lyric and a melody, you know, and so I, I, I give Dave a lot of credit for you know coming up and and finding those little melodies that would fit in you know in between what Edward was playing on a verse and and finding something that would work over those kinds of weird rhythm sections and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think a lot of other players were guitar players first, and. Songwriter second. And really, I mean, for Edward, the song was absolutely as important The guitar playing. In fact, I think he looked at his solos as kind of a, you know, he wanted to play a great solo, but solos were were live on those first records, right? It's not like he was laying for a solo track.
0: Yeah, I've said that a lot on this podcast, I think because my primary function has always been singer-songwriter. I believe that, at least in this world of music, there's plenty of, you know, jazz and all that other stuff that whatever you do should serve the song. If that if what you're creating are songs, it should serve the song. You know? Yeah. It's like a a really, you know, good looking person with giant hair that doesn't match their body. It's like, okay, your hair is great, but it's not really fitting in the whole picture. You know, and and I think that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to their music, you know, at, at a very young age was that I got this sense that friends of mine who who revered guitars and guitarists even way more than I do because that's that's my that's like my secondary instrument or third tertiary really you know, would talk about Steve Vai and Satriani and all these people. And I'd be like, yes, of course, they're virtuosos, but I'm not feeling the hook in there other than just looking at them and saying, wow, you're really great. And again, he always had that purpose of, I mean, there were just some amazing songs, you know, through, I really throughout their career and that, and that's what I loved learning, you know, this last couple of weeks was listening to later stuff and being like, oh, wow, there's some good songs on the, you know, the nineties albums and late eighties and all that too, you know? And, and to know that that craftsmanship was there, again, like you said, puts him in a different category from other guitarists.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why that whole, yeah, that whole thread thing, I mean, some very good guitar players, but yeah, those guys were guitar players first. I mean, you know, and, and a lot of them were not great writers, you know, of, of instrumental guitar tracks, you know, I mean, they could play their asses off. I wish I could play guitar like that, but, but yeah, songs themselves. Ed uh, to be that amazing of a of a guitar player and a and a songwriter an orchestrator that's rare. I mean, he was a rare one for sure.
0: And it's sort of further illustrated by the fact that it's pointed out a few times that, yeah, he made his own guitars and he was very particular about how they were made and anything, but he wasn't precious about the the instruments. And it, it was always, like you said, I mean, it's the title of the book. It was always about tone and, and and you know, getting what he needed out of the instrument. And it just served a purpose, a tool. You know, and I know so many Musicians in general, but guitarists in particular who are so precious about everything they own. And listen, if it's because this sounds better on this song, that's, I totally get that. But if it's because it's an object, I'm not interested in that. And that made me love him even more because I'm like, this is somebody you'd think who'd be like, well, I polish this every day and it's, you know, it's something I, I give it and it's Lucille or whatever, you know, and, and all that stuff. Yeah. And he's just like, no, I turn this knob like this and turn this one like that. I keep tweaking it till I get the right tone. And then I just go to town. You know, that that's beautiful to me.
1: Absolutely. You know, and then I write about the story about him coming over with the two Les Pauls and, uh, you know, putting this cigarette in the headstock of that 159 uh, thinking, Oh, my God. He just really doesn't care. You know, and, and dumping them on the couch, and they almost bump into each other, and going up to 5150 man, um, and he had that V that's on the cover of, uh, I think it's a 1984 issue of a Guitar World, my first cover on Ed. I mean, that V back then was a, a really valuable guitar, and it's sitting on the gr- on the floor, and the floor is filthy, and there's cigarette butts and empty beer cans, and you know the guitars, half of them are in the stands, and you know they're laying over the the, the council. Yeah, he, he was always like that, man. And when he would come over with a guitar, it was never in a case. I'm talking about his main guitar, you know, the Bumblebee. I mean, I don't even know if he owned a case. He did. I'm being facetious. Yeah. But yeah, man, yeah, he, he just did not care. You know, famously, he would butcher some of his earlier instruments. You know, I think it was that uh, Destroyer he butchered. I said, they'd alter the sound. He goes, yeah, man, I totally fucked that up, you know? <laughs> right. You know, and and him doing those things to his amp, and God, he was just, uh and I've always wondered, you know, so he's a tone facer, Was he hearing this sound in his head, which he would describe as the Brown sound? And so that was, that means, you know, when he got the Marshall and, you know, the attenuator and built his own guitars with the one pickup and put the pickup into the body, you know? Was that a fulfillment of that sound he was hearing? Or was it building a guitar, hearing it, and then pursuing that sound and, and defining it? You, you, you know what I mean? Either way, it's it's brilliant.
0: Good question, though. Yeah.
1: You know what I mean? To build your own guitar is one thing. To play the guitar is another thing. And to have the guitar sound like that? Oh, my God. That's yeah. Just- I mean, you listen to his sound on that first record, Uh, you know, I mean, it's monstrous. No one ever had a tone like that. You can hear every single note that he plays.
0: And to hear that he didn't, at that point, wasn't double tracking or anything, that he even said, don't put rhythm underneath a solo. I
1: know, absolutely. Which is why I really love that first record. Cream is one of my favorite bands. And obviously Cream on those early records, you know, there was never rhythm packed under the pillow. Although there were some, even on that first Cream record. Yeah, with Ed, it was just this puritanical thing and just the tone and, and, and just the feel and everything was a pretty amazing first record for sure.
0: Yeah, that blew me away. Yeah. So we're kind of coming up on time pretty soon. So, I, But I wanted to ask a, a couple more questions. And one is, I guess I mentioned you're a musician and you've re- recently released something a, a band uh, an album uh, highway sentinels yeah tell people about that
1: yeah man I'm, I'm really proud of that so my friend jimmy waldo jimmy was the keyboard player in alcatraz that was a band that yngwie malnstein was in and uh, then steve Vai and then danny johnson he and i've been writing songs since the mid 80s his manager giles heard some of these songs that we had done back in the day and he liked them. And and these were songs that I would bring in different singers, you know, people that I knew to sing. I'd written lyrics and melodies, and they were good songs, you know, and I, I wanted to stop them. I tried to get publishing deals and never could. So Jal said, look, man, if you can kind of update them a little bit, you know, make them a little more modern, he I could probably go get you a deal. So Jimmy and I spent a couple of weeks, we took the tapes, and I actually... Put on some rhythm guitars, because I hadn't played on any of those original songs. I had brought in guitar player buddies to do that. So I put on some rhythms, and then Jimmy took it, you know, and redid drums, and ultimately brought in a, a live drummer, Mark Zonder, really great drummer who plays with the band called States Warning. And David said, look, I've got this singer, David Reese. David was a singer in a band called uh, Accept, Latter-day version of Accept, the German band. And so David wrote new lyrics and melodies. I brought in some of my buddies. Joe Satriani did a solo. Wow! Paul Gilbert did a solo. Bumblefoot did a solo. This guy, Larry Flint, from a band called Riot, did a solo. Incredible guitar player. Tracy Gunn did a solo. And not to be outdone, I actually did a solo uh, on one song. I said, Dude, I've got to play one solo. And I I goof with the other guys. I wrote all these guys letters. I go, listen, guys, you guys played amazing solos. And I did one. so." Don't be ashamed if I blow you away, you know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, man, I, I was really happy with that. If anybody wants to go check it out, yeah, Highway Spent The Waiting Fire. It's really a good record, man. There's some good stuff on
0: there. Yeah, and it's everywhere. I listen to it just in the minute we have left. Some of my favorites from it are Victim of the Night, We Won't Be Forgotten, How to Be Real, Hell in a Handbasket. Oh, cool. Yeah, I had to write those down because, I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Cool. And so is there anything in the 30 seconds, we you know, that, uh, that you want to leave people with, place to go or thoughts or anything?
1: Well, I mean, I would ask one thing. If you could leave a review on Amazon, please do so. Excellent. Yes, you know, and anybody, you know, I make myself pretty available to everybody on on Facebook and Instagram. Man, if you have any feelings or any thoughts about the book you read it, let me know. I love hearing that stuff. Uh, if you didn't like the book, I don't want to hear it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, yep. I mean, I'm in the second edition now, and that's going incredibly well. I, I can only say thank you to everybody out there for supporting the book and believing in it. You know, thank you, Nick, for having me on and allowing to uh, talk your ear off,
0: man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Tonechaserbook.com, everybody. We're going to be cut off soon, so I will say goodbye to all of you. Thank you for watching and listening. Music, conversation, and connection always my objective, and thank you so much, Steve, for being here.
1: Very welcome, Nick. Thank you, man.
0: Absolutely. Thanks again to Steve Rosen. It was an absolutely wonderful conversation to have with him. And I urge all of you to go get his book at tonechaserbook.com. And thank you always for watching and listening. And please, again, if you'd like to see the bonus episode, my take on Van Halen and their career and some more thoughts about the book, please go to patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Thanks for hanging with me and I'll talk to you next week.